Good morning, everybody. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading at least the first part of our lesson. We'll start there this morning. I want to put in a quick advertisement about an upcoming class that will begin in the auditorium next Sunday morning at 9.30. We've got a few advertisements around on the doors, and it's mentioned in the bulletin. It's about forgiveness. Any adults that would like to come to that, uh, you're certainly welcome to come. It's going to be an excellent study about uh, the topic of forgive, forgiveness, and freedom. Something I think that we all wrestle with in one way or another. One thing you lack. That's what I'm going to title the lesson for today. Really, I sometimes have a hard time figuring out what title do you put on a lesson. There's all kinds of things. The reality for today is that I know that many of you over the past few weeks have watched in the evenings an array of men and women standing behind podiums claiming why they think they should be president of the United States. And media and competition responding to that in order, and on and on the debate goes. Discussion about what is lacking in our country, telling you why not to trust others, in part describing finances and what they think they're going to do to solve our nation's problems. I don't, uh, what's the word I want to say, blame you for being leery of anybody standing behind a podium. It's scary as I thought about that. And especially because I'm going to talk about finances this morning. Now next week, our elders are going to present a budget for the Central Church and the Student Center, and our mission work, and, and so much more. That's key for us at Central. That'll be after the sermon. And next week, the sermon will be a bit shorter. But this morning, I want to talk about one thing that we lack. And the fact is that I want you to realize that of all the things that are mentioned of people who acclaim to have studied and understood and ruled and knowledge and all, that God has a viewpoint about finances also. And you might find it different than theirs. And because of the fact that in one way or another, whether you tuned into these debates and all the discussion going on or not, there is a ripple effect in our society. And maybe you are bored to death about it and would just shy away from that like I don't know what. And I don't blame you. But it impacts us. And I want to know what God has to say in response to those things or first and foremost. Money can impact us mentally, emotionally. It can impact our family. It can impact our life, and it can impact our spiritual relationship with God. And that's why God has a lot to say about it. It might surprise you to know that in the New Testament, there is more said about money than there is about faith. Shocked? I would be. 
because I talk a lot more about faith than I do money, do I not? But here we are this morning. But I want you to see what's going on here because the love of money is a snare for us. Paul writes to Timothy, chapter 6, 1 Timothy. And he also calls it the root of all kinds of evil. Which means a lot of the stuff that's going on, the roots of that, the growth from that, comes from a love for money. Not money itself, but a love for money. So the scope this morning. First of all, I want to take a look at a man who kept all the laws. Not Jesus, but someone who claimed it at least. And then I want to talk about the power of money. And these are three D words that fit in this. The power to deceive the power to dominate, and the power to destroy. So deceive, dominate, and destroy. After we talk about this guy who, who claimed to have kept all the laws. Now think about this for just a moment before we even read the passage in, in uh, Mark chapter 10. If you've looked through the New Testament and happen to have noticed a lot of times Jesus in his encounters with individuals especially when they're coming to try to trick him with some question. Or maybe they're debating off in some corner something that Jesus did. And he'll, it'll say in caption, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, or knowing what was on their heart. And I'm seeing this on occasion enough to make me assume that every time Jesus was in anybody's presence, he knew what was on their hearts. Now, if that doesn't scare you, in thinking about walking up and just talking to Jesus, and you think, do I even belong in his presence? He knows what's on my heart. We can deceive people once in a while, and we can act really great and look great and, and talk great and, and make it sound like we're great, but maybe inside we're not so well that way, but you can't fake it with Jesus. And so here this individual in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going out on the road. And one came running up and knelt down before him. Those are good gestures to Jesus, right? And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Well, wait a minute. Jesus knows there's something at the guy's heart already because he is good. Matter of fact, he is perfect. But he starts this off because I think he's saying to him, I already know what's going on in your mind. Then in verse 19, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. On top of that, he says, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, if you thought you were going to be facing Jesus tomorrow, you'd start getting your life ready. And every impure thought or everything that would be bad and everything that would be out there, you'd be really polishing up your heart to get ready to go see him. And you could say, Jesus, I've kept all these things all day long, for the last 24 hours. <laughs> but can you imagine standing before the Son of God, knowing he can read your mind, 
and said, I've kept all these commandments, every one of them, from my youth up. Can you say that? I can't. I have a hard time swallowing and saying, I've kept them all the last 24 hours, because it doesn't always work so well. Well, here's this man who's kept them all. In verse 21, it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, one thing you lack. That's what we're talking about this morning. One thing you lack. What do you lack standing before God? What's in your heart? What do you have buried inside there that's your idol? You've done a lot of things good. What do you lack? Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And come take up your cross and follow me. That's a path. And Mark writes, but the man was sad at this word, and he went away, sorrowfully, on top of that. Because he had great possessions. Now, you might feel sorry for the guy because he has great possessions and he should have known better. But the fact is, you and I fit in that category. I don't care if you have a job or not, in this sense. Just about every person that lives in the United States, if you're on a Social Security income, the government's taking care of you, you have more than most people in the world have. They will call you rich, and they will count you as having great possessions. Just by being able to go to a university, you're among the most elite in the world today. By the fact that you have an automobile puts you in the upper 10% of the world. By the fact that you have a checking account, even if it's nothing more than a Social Security check going in and you taking money out, you have more access to money than anybody else in the world or most people in the world. Now, you know people that are rich. They're always the people that are above you, correct? You're kind of in the middle or at the lower part. That's how we all see ourselves, no matter how much money we have. So the question is, what do we lack? Okay, let's talk about this idea of money, the power of money. Number one, the power of money to deceive. And I want you to see the logical order that's going through here. Because first of all, it deceives, then it dominates, and then it destroys. It gets you thinking, oh, I, I just lack this little bitty thing here. And then it starts deceiving you. The parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13 gives us a good insight in that. I want you to turn to that. Parable of the sowers is commonly called. It starts in chapter 1 with Jesus telling the parable. Then it talks about the purpose in there. And, and then later on, the disciples are wanting to know the meaning of this parable. It doesn't seem all that complicated to us. But for them, this is right at the beginning of their ministry. And they're trying to understand what's going on. And so Jesus discloses the meaning of a parable of the sower. And you, I know it. We, we, we watch this. It talks about the one who sows the seed out there, and it's the word of God. It's going out, and it's going to a variety of different soils or hearts of individuals. Not everybody's heart's the same. You and I both know that. 
And as we look at this person here that's telling the story, it's Jesus, the Son of God. He's describing humanity and God's Word going out to everybody. And not everybody's going to see it the same. And so he describes one, and in verse 19, he compares it to the hard-hearted individual that the seed can't even penetrate. The, The birds will come along and they'll snatch the Word right out of his heart. That's one type of person. Verse 20, but he who receives the seed on stony places, another kind of soil. This is the one that hears the word and and immediately receives it with joy. You ever seen people like that? Yeah, sure. I'm so excited about God. That's fantastic. When they go live just however they please. But they're, they're joyful about hearing the word of God. Verse 21, yet he has no root in himself and he, he endures only for a while. Kind of like when you get back home, things change. And then when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, like trying to be a Christian, immediately he stumbles, falls away, quits. And we know that. Verse 22, this is what I want you to pay attention to here. This is, this is what we're talking about here. Now, he who received the word among the thorns, he's the one who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. Finances are deceptive. They can rob you. They can deceive you. They can fool you in so many different ways. And I want you to see who's telling the story here. It's the Son of God himself. And he's been watching since day one. He was involved in the creation, by the way. John chapter 1 tells us that. And so when he's watching Adam and Eve in the garden, day one, even as adults, because they made them as adults, they weren't little infant babies in the garden, taking care of themselves and taking care of the garden, whatever age they might have been as God presented them on day one, they were like that. But nonetheless, here they are, and he's watching them grow, and he's seeing them interact, and he's, he's watching humanity come along, and if there's anybody that's ever seen how humanity acts, Jesus And he knows exactly from making us and from having observed since day one. He watches us when we get our money. He says, oh, he's getting fooled. He thinks that's his own money because he got paid for work. He says, that's mine. I can do what I please. Deception. Satan's convincing you that there's something unique about you. You're special. So you're going to take your money and it's going to deceive you. And you're going to be confused about what's going on. So I just want you to see because it's going to harm you if you're not careful. And next week I'm going to talk about finances again and what it can do for blessing you. Because it can. But you have to be careful. Finances are deceptive. Let's talk about what it can do in dominating us. Because as we look at this, what's going on. We think we got more money. We're in charge now. The more money you have, the more charge you have, right? Like there's a guy running for president of the United States. There's a couple of them. They have a couple billion dollars each. Well, millions. And then some guy has some billions of dollars. And they're picking on him because he has more. And it's, they're just trying to oust one, whatever they use, you know, and trying to defeat one and the other. But the fact is, they're saying you dominate other people because that's what we think of because of money. And we know people that are like that. 
They're controlling. But the fact is, money is the thing that dominates, is what's talking about here. Jesus, here's what he says, Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Now just pause there for a moment. That's, that's pretty well understood. Now we don't have slavery today, and I'm thankful for that. But just envision you're going to work and you have two bosses. So you clock in in the morning, and, and boss number one says, I want you, first thing to do is I want you to go over here and work. And you step out and you start that direction. Boss number two comes up, equal power, and he says, now here's where I want you to start, over on this side. And you go, wait a minute, uh, I can't do both. And this is what Jesus is saying. No man can serve two masters. Eventually, you're going to start to like one, the way he treats you, the way he talks, or the way he is, and you're going to like him. And the other guy, he's going to be grumpy and grouchy, and you're not going to like him. So you're going to be swayed toward doing what this guy says, even though they might be equal. Two bosses. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. What are you talking about, Jesus? You cannot serve God and riches. Ma'am, in an older translation, says. He's talking about wealth. No, no, but you, God, you got it wrong. Here, I'm in charge of the wealth. I take care of it. I tell it what to do. I use my money to buy my things and my, and all of a sudden you realize it's I, me, and my, and it's got control of me. And that's what he's talking about here. The maker now of the heavens and the earth fully understands how the process goes. And here's the thing. The more you've got, the more potential it has in dominating you. As you see it being powerful, all of a sudden it starts having power over you. Most of you are too young to know Jack Benny. But he was a character and a comedian that lived some years ago, and he had his own show on TV. In real life, Jack Benny was extremely generous and very wealthy. But on his TV show, he quite often portrayed the guy who was a skin flint and pinched pennies like you wouldn't believe. He'd send his friend out to go buy stuff for him at the grocery store, and he'd tell him, make sure to dent the cans so they can sell it to you at half price when you start to check out. And he'd come back and say, I got in trouble today because I was trying to dent the milk cartons. Back then, the milk cartons were glass, and he got in trouble breaking them. So here's a scene. I remember watching it and how I can remember some of these and not, but otherwise. A thief comes up. Guy's got his hand in his pocket. He's got his 45 or whatever inside, and he comes up, and he sticks a gun up there like this, and he goes, your money, your life. And Jack Benny looks at him. He's a thug. You know, he says, come on, buddy. Your money or your life? Jack Benny says, I know, I know. He says, I'm thinking about it. But that's true. Our money dominates us. We're not sure which one we want to trade sometimes. Now, I've seen people turn over thousands of dollars they happen to have for life-saving equipment and medicine. I understand. But they went sometimes, oh, I hate to give all that up. So wait a minute, what? It's money, it's not life. But somehow or another, it can totally 
overtake us. You know, James chapter 4, the brother of Jesus writes in chapter 4, verse 4, friendship of the world is enmity with God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he quotes, mind you, he's quoting the people a saying that they had back then, all things are lawful unto me. And he says, following that up, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Do you capture that? Yeah, it's lawful for me to have money, but I'm not going to let it control me, you see. Or the best yet was what Satan said to Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 4, three great temptations. And he's talking to Jesus. He brings him up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, I want you to look down over the worlds here, and I want you to see everything that's out there. And he says, all this I will give you if you bow down before me. Satan's one to dominate. So it has the power to deceive, it has the power to dominate, and it has the power to destroy. Two examples, one's in the Old Testament, one is in the New. First one is in the fifth book of the Old Testament, second one's in the fifth book of the New Testament. Both of them start with the letter A. First character's name is Achan. And this is what is said about him in Joshua chapter 7. As the people of Israel were out conquesting the land as God had commanded them. And one thing they were supposed to do was take all the wealth and throw it away. Just totally destroy it. All the animals, all the riches, all of everything. That was God's plan, God's command. And so Achan along with them is doing a tremendous job until he sees something he likes. And he packs it under his cloak and he takes it back with him. And he's found out. His response when Joshua had command is these words. Now Achan answered Joshua and he said, Indeed, I've sinned against the Lord and of Israel and this is what I've done. Listen closely. When I saw the spoils, a beautiful Babylonian garment and, and two wedges of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted to them. And then I took them, excuse me, I saw them, I coveted them, and I took them. It had the power of dominating his life. I saw him, I coveted him, and then I took him. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, fifth book of the New Testament now. Again, starting with the letter A, Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Took a plot of ground, sold what they had. They wanted to look good in front of everybody else, but they didn't want to give up everything. They could have done it a totally different way and been honored, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to be honored like their friend Barnabas. And so they come bringing half the money to the apostles, claiming it was all they had from the land sale. And they lied and they died. Achan died in his pathway after having committed the sin. Ananias and Sapphira both fall down dead before the apostles' feet. Wealth can destroy us. It's a simple plan that Satan has going. It's been going since time has started. As we think about what's going on here, he gets you to look at this and he goes, I, I, I've got it all together. I'm almost perfect. I just lack one little thing. It, it's not that bad. Satan's deceptive. 
Sin is deceptive. Money is deceptive. It deceives, it dominates, and it destroys. Next week, we're going to talk about managing God's blessings, that they become a blessing for you. It is possible. It's possible to have great wealth and have a great relationship with God. But that fellow that we read about in Matthew, in Mark chapter 10, went away sorrowfully. He wanted a relationship with Jesus, but he couldn't part from his money. Don't let anything stand in your way between you and God. Because when you leave this earth, all you've got is your relationship with your God. How are you this morning? Do you lack something? Is there something that needs to be right? Is wealth taking over your life, even if you have just a little bit? Does it consume who you are? Is it dominating you? It will destroy you. They don't say, oh, well, I've got plenty of time. It's, that's the thing. It's deceptive. If you lack something in your relationship with God, get it right. And live it right. And rejoice with the Lord in following him. And knowing you've got eternity in heaven. Are you a Christian? Would you like to be one? Being buried with Christ in baptism, you can have a relationship with Jesus. Have your sins washed away. And you can go to heaven confidently. Not because you're great, because none of us are. But because we serve a great God that promises us that that's ours. We sing a song. If your relationship is not right with God, would you come while we stand and sing?